I'm glad for all of us being able to get together this morning. Uh, it's a little smaller group than normal because we have some people out. I know Richard's traveling. Um, Leanne's not feeling well again. Uh, Pat's also kind of uh, not feeling well this morning. Is uh, so we have we have several people gone. Maggie's also gone to Houston visiting family kind of at the last minute, the 12th hour flight there. Um, and so we're missing a few of our own, but we are also thankful to have everyone here, thankful for our visitors that are here as well. Um, this morning I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the church. I wanted to talk a little bit um, about that topic and specifically uh, what I've titled this lesson um, and hopefully what we'll be talking about and will be helpful for you is that the church is really um, and or the example of love. Um, and so really this morning I want to talk about how the Bible kind of talks about the church. What is the church? I want to spend a little bit of time just at the beginning of the lesson kind of laying that out, how I'm going to use the term church, and I think how the Bible supports that concept. But then really addressing kind of a couple questions about the church, and that is why the church should be an example of love, and how the church should be an example of love. And so that's really what I want to talk about this morning. Um, with that said, because it's a kind of a topic-related discussion, it's, we're not looking at one story in the Bible. We're going to be kind of moving around a little bit. Um, and so I'm sorry if we're flipping a lot, but hopefully I'll try to um, limit our kind of moving around this morning. But I do have several verses that we're going to look at. So first of all, what is the church? Um, you know, we might think of in our heads when we consider that question, we might think about church buildings, right? Um, places that people meet to worship. We might think about um, whether it's something small like this living room. Um, or whether we might picture, you know, when we think of churches, we might think of big churches, right? With steeples and bell towers. And maybe you think of Europe and the grand church buildings that are, um, centuries old. Uh, maybe you think of that. Well, the first thing that I think we need to notice about the church, um, and it's something pretty fundamental, is that it's something that Jesus established. If you look in Matthew chapter 16, again, we're going to be flipping around a lot, so bear with us this morning as we kind of move from verse to verse. I'm going to try my best, as always, to respect the context in which these verses are being pulled from, so we're not just plucking a verse out of its chapter and just I can say whatever I want to say about it because I'm pulling it out of its context. But hopefully within the context, these statements are true. Something established by Jesus, Matthew chapter 16, if you look at verse 18, uh, Jesus is having a conversation with Peter, uh, one of his followers who ends up, we know, becoming an apostle, one sent by Jesus to preach the gospel. And in verse 18, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All right, so he has this conversation with Peter, and probably some of us are familiar with this conversation, because he asks Peter, Who do you say that I am? And he says in verse 16, Peter responds, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's when... Jesus responds following that, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And that's when we have verse 18. He says, And I tell you, upon this rock I will build my church. Of course, Jesus here 
reveals to us that this is something that he's establishing, that he's something he's building, we might say in this context. Um, and it says in verse, you know, we kind of, we might wonder, well, what is the church built on? And it seems to, as he uses Peter's name, kind of a play on words, which Peter's name kind of means rock, right? He changed his name to that. It's almost as if he's saying that this, in this context, this confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Peter makes, is kind of the rock, the foundation. That claim is what Jesus is going to establish or build his church on. And so it's only fitting that the man named Rock, in a sense, would make that claim. And so, so we see just from the outset that the church is something, whatever it is, it's something that Jesus builds. Um, and he builds it on the claim of who he is as the Messiah, as the one, the Son of God. Um, it's the same claim that we see, you know, the church being built in Acts chapter 2, when those who respond to the gospel from Peter's sermon, same Peter that this conversation occurred with, they respond by saying to Peter after he tells them that they had crucified Jesus. And so they say, men and brethren, what are we going to do? And Peter responds there by telling them that whoever <laughs> repents and is baptized receive the Spirit and receive forgiveness of sins. And it's Upon this Jesus, we see later, a couple verses down in Acts chapter 2, it says that 3,000 souls were added. Well, the implication there is, well, they're added to what? Well, when you read the context of Acts, it seems like it's the church. It's got to be God adding to this church that Jesus has established. And so again, we see that Christ has built this church, and it's really His gospel that calls people to be a part of this church. Um, and it's really the claim of Him being the Son of God that it's built upon. Well, it only makes sense then if we turn to Ephesians chapter 5 that the church is something that not only is it built by Jesus and it's kind of established about by who Jesus is, kind of the natural assumption would be, well, Jesus must be the ruler of it then. Well, that's really what Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, um, looking in verse 23. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23, Paul's writing to the church in an area called Ephesus, thus the name Ephesians, and it says... Verse 23, the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So just in that one verse, Paul's kind of relating relationships we might be familiar with, right? Just as the husband might be the head of the wife, Christ is the head of the church. And the church really is, in this instance, it's his body. Right? So again, Christ has established it based on who he is, his claims, his truths, and he's also going to rule it. Um, it's one thing for somebody to build something and then kind of leave it for other people to oversee, right? But Jesus builds it and he rules it. He's the head of it. All right? And then one, one more thing that I think is important in understanding the church is that kind of what we might think of sometimes, I have a, a tendency to do this. When I think about church, I think about buildings, Right. Well, we need to understand that the church is, if you haven't already picked up on this or don't already understand, that the church is really people, not a place. Um, I think we, we call these buildings and these things churches because that's where the church meets, right? And that's where we kind of associate ourselves because that's where we are all the time when we meet together, it seems. But it's important to come back to kind of this basic truth. If you go to Romans uh, chapter 16... <coughs> 
Romans 16, verse 16, it reads, the very end of this letter, um, Paul's writing the church in the city of Corinth. At the very end of the letter, after listing off all these people that they're supposed to be greeting, you know, say hey to this person, greet this person for me, because Paul knows a lot of the people that are in this area, or in uh, Rome here. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Well, I've never seen a building really greet anybody. Um, It just seems as if he's referring to all these people that he's greeting, and then he lumps them into kind of this corporate or this body, and he says, the churches of Christ greet you. What does he mean by that? Well, certainly all the people that he's with send their greetings. They are the church, right? Well, I think this verse not only tells us that the church is people, and it's not necessarily just a building or a place, but you could also even pull from this verse that there is a church in the sense of Christ is the head, and we are the body, as Ephesians 5 says. Every believer is part of the church. But there's a sense in which there are churches, right? Maybe there's one in Rome, and there's one in Corinth, and there's one in Ephesus, just as there might be one here downtown, and there might be one in Marietta, and there might be one. We are the church collectively. Only God is our head. But we may be a church in the sense of we're here in Atlanta, and they're in Marietta. Um, And so we certainly see that demonstrated, and you see that sort of in Romans 16 when he says churches. You could also go to... Ephesians 4, chapter or chapter 4, verse 4. There's an appeal there by Paul, the way he writes, talking about kind of what we might say the universal church, this one big church in the world, right? But then in Galatians chapter 1, just the introduction of that book, he says the church in Galatia, right? The church here in this place greets you. And so... Again, so those are just a couple of things I think that are helpful as we go through this lesson. When, when I'm saying the word church, I'm talking about the saved people of God. Whether that's all over the world, kind of this universal concept, or even as we might apply it just in our lives, we'd probably apply it here because we're a part of this body. These are the people that we work with, right? So that's the kind of the things that I'm going to be saying, meaning when I say church as we work through this lesson. Okay, so the church should be an example of love. Um, certainly that's at least appealing to me and probably appealing to most of us in this room because it's, I don't like the alternative. Like, Why would I be a part of something that's going to be hateful, right? But it's, it's kind of fun, something fundamental we, we need to not only understand, but we kind of need to understand to the point of we know how to practice that, right? Uh, we know what kind of love or ways we can show love to people. Um, well, let's first, let's talk about why the church even needs to be an example of love. First of all, I would turn to Acts chapter 20, which is in the New Testament. Right after the Gospel of John, where we were this morning, um, is the book of Acts. And towards the end of that book is chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Look at verse uh, 28 with me here. Acts 20, verse 28. <coughs> all right. It says, Pay careful attention, you yourselves, and to all the flock. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
In this part of Acts, Paul is um, traveling around a lot, and he realizes that he's probably not going to get to see these people again. And these people are Christians in the city called Ephesus, and particularly, um, as it says in this verse, in verse 28, he identifies them as, God, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So really he's speaking of the elders or the overseers of the church in Ephesus. It's kind of the leaders of that church, right? He says, I'm not, this is kind of his farewell, but he's reminding them of some things. And in verse 28, he says, this Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I think this verse kind of gives us a reason why the church um, needs to be an example of love in that last little statement there. God himself has, as it says in verse 28, obtained this church. We might say created this church, right? He's obtained it, he's created it, established it, however we want to say that, with his own blood. The act of love on God's part, we might even point to specifically the act of Jesus, right? Dying on the cross is what establishes the church, that was an act of love. And so it only makes sense to say, well, then the church needs to be an example of love, right? It's the reason we exist. Our foundation is that one of love, right? If there was no grand sign and action of love on God's part, then the church isn't even something that would exist. Um, and so, I mean, that's kind of a simple reason, right? Because the act of our establishment, the act of our existence is one of love, we should be loving. Um, all right, and then, you know, Ephesians 5, verse 25, we won't turn there, but that's another verse that I just kind of picked out, one of many that you could point to and say, you know, the reason we exist, Ephesians 5, 25, kind of points to our existence is love, right? Um, and so that's another verse you could turn to. God has shown that he loves us in creating the church, and so we should be an expression of that. If you want to turn back a little bit in the book of Acts, chapter 11, go a little bit further back in Acts. Let's read verses 25 and 26 of Acts chapter 11. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Again, this is just kind of a, a almost a history here. At the very end it says, this city was really the first city where people became known as this term Christian. To us, it's, it's I mean, synonymous with the church, right? A Christian probably goes, as we might say, goes to church, right? But it wasn't until this point that really people kind of became known by that name, Christian. But it makes sense, right? If Christ is the one who establishes the church and he's the head of church, then it makes sense for the, the believers and the followers of that to be named after him, right? I mean, we do that with a lot of other things. Um, I mean, we could probably come up with a lot of examples of that. We might say followers of John Calvin, you could say that they might be called Calvinists, right? Um, I mean, you can name almost any movement that has a person as its head. Usually the people that follow that movement are some form of their name, right? Well, it makes sense that they're Christians here. And so my point in this is the fact that we as believers or followers of Jesus and we're part of this church really 
love is in our name, right? I mean, Jesus, being God, is love. And so to wear the name Christian is to say that we have love, we understand love, we know love. And so not only is it the reason we exist, it's the name we wear. It is love, right? And so I think those are two kind of fundamental reasons why we might even bother with this whole love thing. Uh, Okay, so... The church, we kind of know, at least on a basic level, kind of what we mean by the word church. And on a basic level, we kind of understand love is really the reason the church even exists. And it's really the fundamental, a fundamental aspect of the name that we wear as a Christian, love, right? All right, so there's a couple other questions that we kind of need to answer in this. Um, so how is the church an example of love? Okay, I understand what the church is. I understand that it's why we exist, an expression of God's love for us to save us, and we get to wear that name, which really means love. God is love, right? We're Christians. But how do I show that love? Um, Well, I want to talk about three ways maybe we can show love kind of generally. With each one, I have two scriptures. The first one is kind of, we might say, the command. Like, scripture says we have to do this. The second part might be maybe an example of how we do that. Okay, so how, the first one is, the first answer to how is the church an example of love, I would say the church shows others how to love God. Maybe that's how we are an example of love, is that we're showing other people how to love God. Um, And what I mean by that is, if we're the church, if you and I are Christians, and we are, God has added us to that church, then we need to show other people what it is to love God. Right, um, Matthew 22, and I appreciate James reading this for us earlier. You can turn there again. We won't, we won't read it all right now. But Matthew chapter 22, we're going to come here again for another one of these how we show love points later. But Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37 reads... And this is Jesus speaking. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. That's just one verse, I think, of a lot of verses we could turn to to say, it's important to love God, I mean, for ourselves. But the implication here for me is, if I'm to love God, probably other people should too, right? Um, And if I'm to love God and I know God's word and I understand maybe the how-to on that, like how do I love God? Well, this verse says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with your mind, right? If I know I'm supposed to be doing that, I could probably help other people figure out that part, right? I could probably tell someone that doesn't know, hey, you know, you're, you're to love God with everything that you are. By extension... You know, this individual command. I think this command really is for you and you and me and you. But if the church is people, you could say the church is supposed to be loving God, right? And so to say the church can show other people how to love God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. I think this is an interesting example um, of how to show others to love God. It's an example that I didn't even think of when I was first doing this lesson. It took a little while to kind of to find this and figure out uh, how this would plug in here. 
So how do we show, or rather, how does the church show others how to love God? You know, I think there's a lot of potential answers to this. I think primarily we might think, well, I can show other people how to love God by teaching them God's word, right? And God will basically tell them how to love me. I think there's plenty of places that point to the concept of obeying God as a way we show our love for God, right? I mean, that's kind of the fundamental... If my parent tells me, clean up my room, I don't really want to clean up my room. Not typically. At least knowing me, I never really wanted to clean up my room. And so there was really no reason within myself to clean it up because I didn't enjoy cleaning it up. Cleaning it up didn't do anything for me. But if I loved my mom or my dad like I should, then I'd clean it up because they asked me to, right? If for nothing else, because they said to. Um, I think you can kind of apply that to God, right? I may not see any value or understand what it is going on. It may not do anything for me. But if God says, hey, do this or don't do this, then out of a love and respect for God, I should probably do or not do whatever it is, whatever that thing is, right? Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Uh, Peter, all throughout this letter is addressing a people that have kind of been scattered. Um, Addressing a people who are enduring various trials and persecutions because of their beliefs in Jesus, because they believe He's the Son of God and all that means in their life. And so a lot of 1 Peter deals with this kind of concept of being persecuted and submitting and um, enduring. And in this instruction here, he talks about really what it is to kind of suffer in the trials, right? I think there's a couple interesting things that tie into our point here. First of all, he says, don't suffer in certain ways. If you're suffering because you've done something bad, well, then that's kind of fitting, right? He says in verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Well, that makes sense, right? Why would we be suffering because of those things? Well, we're being punished for being a murderer or a meddler or whatever. That, That makes sense. Don't suffer for that. But the contrast is, if you're insulted, verse 14, for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Well, why would you be insulted for the name of Christ? Well, I mean, that's not probably something we endure too much. And there's a lot of thanks to God we can give for that. You know, not having to go through those sorts of things. But it could happen, right? There could come a time or a place where because of your beliefs in God... Not only are you insulted, but it says, in fact, um, verse 16, you could suffer, right? It's not just maybe somebody calls you a name, though that can happen, and that's not enjoyable. Maybe it goes beyond that. 
Maybe it's persistent and you actually suffer. Maybe like the people in this day and age, you're scattered. You can't live at the place you've always lived anymore. You have to run. But the instruction that the Holy Spirit gives us through Peter here, that God gives us, is that we're not to be suffering in certain ways. And to me that's saying you're not to be living the way God tells you you're not to be living. Christians know that. They understand what it is to obey God and live this new life. But we can show the love of God by how we deal with trial even. I mean, imagine in this day and age, you know, a Roman is commanded to seek out Christians and imprison them. Or whatever kind of punishment that he's been commanded to dole out to the people, the Christians in his city. Well, then he, he starts finding these Christians, and he, as he encounters them, they're rejoicing. You know, he finds people that are being persecuted for their beliefs, but they're rejoicing and they're praising God as they're suffering in prison or as they're suffering torture or whatever it is. It's hard to imagine that happening. You can imagine if I'm a Roman, I'm a little bit confused, right? Um... I think even if I'm a Christian, I might be somewhat confused as to what's going on, but especially if I'm a Roman, right? I'm not a believer in God. And so I think in kind of that indirect way, we're seeing in 1 Peter chapter 4 here that Peter is really telling them that there's a way you can show what God has done, his love for you, and in a way show others the love of God by rejoicing through your trials, Right? It's God's love that has given you this hope. It's God's love that allows you to suffer um, in kind of this hopeful way. And so that's going to certainly cause other people to kind of question what's going on. Hey, why are you not upset about what's going on, right? Well, maybe that's an opportunity to show people God's <clears throat> love. So that, that's kind of a, um, maybe a way that is a little more indirect, maybe is a little more... Um, difficult than maybe the typical ways we think about showing the love of God to other people. But I think it's kind of a cool way that we see Peter instructing Christians, i.e. churches, to say, hey, when you're suffering, suffer and give glory to God because you're a Christian. If you're suffering for the name of Christ, really, there's a way you can go about this. And it seems as if when you're rejoicing and when you're being thankful for suffering like Jesus suffered, I think you'd be showing the love of God to other people in that way. So that's just one way I think that we could show the love of God is in our example of how we suffer, how we live our lives. We're not murderers. We're not meddlers. Um, We can show the love of God to people. By reflecting Jesus, as verse 13 says, by living a godly life, as verses 15 through 16 said, and by trusting (laughs) God when things get hard. Those are kind of what I see in this. Those are the three ways I think we can show the love of God to other people. All right, so the next thing I think on how the church is the example of love is the church shows others that we love one another. So when when people look at the church, I think we're trying to show them how to love God in our actions and our examples. But we're also showing them, um, we're showing love by how we're treating one another. Um, if, if the church fails in this regard, I think, and oftentimes we do, uh, because the church is founded in love and we wear the name of love, we begin to look like hypocrites, right? And so we need to, to love one another. Look at John chapter 13. 
John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus plainly says, you need to love each other. And in fact, people are going to know that you're followers of mine because you love each other. Which I think implies that it's not always easy to love each other, right? Like if Jesus is having to say, hey, you guys need to love each other, that probably means some of you don't really love like you ought to. Or you're not very lovable sometimes, right? Um, I think we all kind of experience people in our lives that we don't think are very lovable, right? Like, ah, it's really tough for me, for whatever reason, to love you. But if I'm a Christian, and especially if they're a Christian, we got to figure out a way to love one another, right? Um, it doesn't mean that we're always going to be the best of friends, but I think it does mean that we're showing love to one another. So Jesus commands that, right? He commands that to to his followers, his disciples, as he says in this verse. People are going to know you're my follower because you do this. Well, then I think by extension we could say, well, if each one of us is a follower of Jesus, we're a member of the church, then we should probably be loving one another. Uh, Look at, uh, look with me in the book of Acts, chapter 2. We see the church kind of living this out in some specific ways, how they love one another. Now, Uh, I'm not really sure how to relate to the society that the Jews lived in um, 2,000 some odd years ago. But I think on some level we still kind of understand some of the things that are going on here. Look at the end of Acts chapter 2. We'll read beginning in verse 42. So at the very end of the chapter. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, so we have this portrait of kind of, of we might say, the first church, right? In Acts chapter 2, we've already talked about how Peter at the beginning of this chapter kind of stands up and preaches this lesson about how they crucified Jesus, who was the Son of God. They end up saying, what are we going to do about this? And Peter, in verse 38, says, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And it says that 3,000 people in verse 41 responded to that and were baptized and they were added. Well, then the next thing that we see is what we just read. And so it seems that these new Christians, these new people of the church, really knew how to love each other kind of immediately. And I don't imagine that was the easiest thing all the time because if I understand Pentecost, people would have been from all over. And they all came from all over to come to Jerusalem. So they would have been really different. But they figured out a way to love each other. Their love manifested itself in different ways. Um, First of all, we see that they were all kind of learning together. They were listening to the apostles' teaching. They were worshiping together. They were going to the temple. Um, It says they were having fellowship. They were even eating together and praying together. They were even taking care of one another because it says in verse 44, all who believed had all things in common. 
and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to whoever had need. You know, I think we have kind of a really high standard of what it is to really love each other um, as God shows us in His Word. He's, you know, the fact that God kind of points out, like, hey, this is what the first Christians kind of did together with their time with one another, I think is implying this is kind of what we should shoot for. This is kind of God's, if you will, thumbs up to this scene. Because um, it says at the end of this, they're praising God and having favor in verse 47 with all people, and the Lord added to their number. I mean, we see God adding to what's going on here. Um, and so I think when we consider that the church needs to be an example of love by loving each other, we can turn to this kind of passage and see maybe how do we do that? Well, maybe we should eat more meals together and we should spend more time together. Maybe we should learn together and worship together. And if any one of us have a need, maybe we should be the ones to take care of that need. We should learn to sacrifice and to give to each other. Uh, I'm not always the best at this, and I'm sure you guys know that. But this is what really should be our standard. We should be striving to be all that God has commanded and asked us to be as far as loving each other. So the church is an example of love by showing other people how to love, maybe by our example and how we trust in God during hard times. And then we are to be an example of love by loving each other. And maybe that involves giving up things and sharing and eating together, praying together. And the last part is, is we show others that we love them. So we're not only just teaching people how to love God, and we're not just loving the people that are also Christians, but we're also showing other people that we love them too. Um, Matthew chapter 22 that James read for us, again, reflects this. and I'll just turn back there and read it quickly. I'll read verse 38 of Matthew 22. Verse 38 of Matthew 22 reads, or verse 39, sorry, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And the other commandment was the one we read a minute ago, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. But the second is like it. I mean, can you imagine saying loving God is top notch, but the second, it's almost like 1A and 1B, right? The second is like it. You should love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. Well, of course, we know the story. We're probably familiar at least with the story in Luke chapter 10 where some guy comes up to Jesus and says, who's my neighbor? He's trying to kind of, we imagine, get some parameters, some very law-like parameters. I'm like, okay, who exactly is my neighbor so I know who to show love to? Well, remember that story Jesus tells us about the guy who was robbed and beaten and left on the side of the road? Well, his neighbor was the last guy you'd expect to be his neighbor. It happened to be really socially um, his enemy. Samaritans and Jews were not friendly to one another culturally, but that was the guy. The Samaritan was the guy that stopped and helped the hurt Jew when a priest walked by and other people you might expect to help him walk by. And so I think here we should love our neighbor is whoever in that moment is our neighbor. If we happen to be walking by someone, as Luke 10 might suggest, and we see they have a need, well then they're our neighbor. Um, so the church really needs to be an example of this. If Robin and James and Kathy and me and Angela, you know, all of us are Christians and we're to be loving our neighbor. I think it's safe to say that the church is to be loving neighbors. Um, 
Acts chapter 7. I think this is kind of a good example of this. This example is kind of like these commandments we've been saying directed or is focusing on an individual, but I think it reflects maybe a mentality that we should all share. Okay, so I, I say that the, the church, as in all of us Christians, should share kind of this mentality, I think, in Acts chapter 7. Let's read verses 56 through 60. This is when Stephen, uh, well, we might say, you probably have a heading that says the stoning of Stephen or something like that, but this is when Stephen has brought the gospel to uh, a big group of people, but when they hear it, they're not happy about it. In fact, they get mad at him. And they lash out at him personally for the message that he brought. And so beginning in verse 56. And he said, and this is Stephen speaking, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I think Stephen really kind of ultimately, kind of in a final way, manifests how much he loved other people. Apparently, these other people that he was loving were, you could say pretty safely, their enemies. Um... And I can't help but think of, and I think probably most of us can't help but think of, of how this is really similar to what Jesus did. I mean, you think about it as Jesus is hanging on the cross. I mean, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, right? And so I think Stephen is really manifesting that spirit of Jesus. He's really wearing the name of Christian well. And so I think Stephen here stands as a positive example to us we might say to us as the church, of how to love other people. Um, even when they're not very lovable. In fact, it's not that they're just annoying, that they're directly opposed to who he was and what he was saying. And really, that's to say they're directly opposed to God. Um, and so I think Stephen serves as a good example. He didn't lash out. He didn't fight back. He just said, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this against them. So I think in a similar way, we need to be loving towards people. And sometimes our love, we show our love to other people by teaching them how to love God, right? Those kind of fit together. If I love you, then I want what's best for you. And if I believe serving God is the best thing for you, then that's what I'm going to try to help you figure out how to do. But sometimes it's suffering harm at the hands of other people might be, in this case, the best thing for them. He says, Father, don't hold this against them. So I think while Stephen's example is a difficult one, um, and what I mean is, yeah, it's difficult to wrap my head around and kind of get myself in a position to be willing to be a Stephen, I think it's a difficult one to kind of figure out how to even have that spirit, right? And I'm not sure the best answer to that other than to say to be more Christ-like, right? Philippians chapter 2 describes what it is Jesus did by becoming a man, how much of a drop in stature that was. He went from being in heaven and being God to not only being a man, but being a servant of men and being rejected and being beaten and being killed. And so I think the more we reflect on Jesus and what it was he did for us in humbling himself further than anyone's ever been humbled, willingly, is I think that 
how we become more and more like Christ, i.e. like Stephen. So with that being said, sometimes, you know, loving other people is not easy. In fact, it killed Stephen. Um, But it's something the church really has to do if we're going to be like Jesus. Um, So hopefully this lesson has been helpful for you. Um, The church, us, here, in this place, in this living room right now, need to be showing other people how to love God. We need to be loving each other. But we need to be loving other people as well. But even in a broader scope, whether you're in Atlanta the rest of your life, or whether you end up moving somewhere else, or you're thinking about Christians in other parts of the world, the church, wherever the church is, wherever God has people, we they need to be mimicking these same things too. So these are things that God really emphasizes and wants his church to reflect, and that is love, just as he is love. And so I think that's three ways we can reflect that. So hopefully this lesson's been helpful for you, uh, maybe to get you thinking about some things maybe you haven't thought about, or maybe things you haven't thought about in a while, and you just needed to kind of be encouraged with that. Um, And if you find yourself, I know this lesson hasn't been really geared towards like how to be part of the church and how to be a Christian, but certainly this lesson I hopefully would at least emphasize the need to be a part of the church and the need to be a Christian to reflect these things. Those are things you haven't figured out in your life, how to do that, or if you're you did at one point and you're kind of messing that up now that's those are things that we'd be happy to kind of sit down and try to show you the love of God in that way and kind of get you in the right path and make sure that um, we can encourage each other and we we end up serving God with our whole hearts so if there's any way that we can help you this morning we'd ask that you kind of reach out to somebody you know sitting beside you or something that we can pray for you and help you anyway we'll stand and sing uh, this this song that Robin is 451 